Hello, I'm Jamie DiPolo, Senior Editor at BreastCancer.org. I'm podcasting live from the 2023 San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. My guest is Dr. Kelly Shanahan, OBGYN, who has been living with metastatic breast cancer for 10 years. I've spoken to Kelly in the past, and she always talked about how much she wanted to be in a clinical trial. She is now, and she's going to tell us about that experience. So, Kelly, how did you come to be in a trial? Thanks, Jamie, for that question and the opportunity to speak with you and the listeners uh, today. So I was a super lucky person who went many, 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 many years without any progression and then had my first progression. And I always talked to my brilliant uh, NBC expert oncologist about trials that I might qualify for. But when I had that first progression two years ago, we decided to go on standard of care treatment with fulvestrin and palbociclib which I did well on for, you know, 18 to 24 months, um, but started having little areas of progression. And it was like, okay, now it's time for a clinical trial. Um, And I I have the privilege of knowing oncologists all over the country through my advocacy work. And I spoke to some other oncology friends uh, across the country Um, And there were a couple of trials that looked interesting, but it would have required me to move, you know, out of California for a couple of months. And um, my brilliant uh, super NBC expert oncologist and I came up with a trial in San Francisco, um, a phase one trial that looks very promising. I reviewed all the data that's published on anything they had done before. and decided to enroll in this trial. Now, it's a phase one trial. Yeah, tell us what that means, because I'm not sure everybody's gonna be familiar with that. So trials are different phases. There's phase one. Well, first there's something called first in human, which is usually super small numbers to make sure like the medicine's not gonna kill you or turn you purple or something immediately. And then there's the traditional phase one uh, or one B trial where they're looking at, um, they've already figured out a dose they want to use from the very, very first in human stuff and animal model studies. And, and they administer this um, often with standard of care or, you know, occasionally it's um, you've been on one therapy and then they switch to this to see if it works well. Um, and then they'll move on. So often they'll test the drug by itself, the investigational drug by itself, and then they might do another phase one trial in combination with an existing medication. And then it goes to phase two, which is higher numbers of people. A phase one trial might have dozens of people enrolled. Uh, a 1B may have a few dozen people enrolled. A stage two, a phase two trial might have you know, 100 people enrolled, and then when you get up to the phase threes, the ones that are done in order to get the drug approval through the FDA, it's hundreds or maybe even a thousand or so people. Um, so I am in a, a trial where they combine the investigational drug with standard of care, either ribocyclib, one of the CDK4-6 inhibitors, or apelacib, which is a PIK3CA directed therapy that's got some gnarly side effects. <laughs> Um, and even though I personally have a PIK3CA mutation, my brilliant oncologist and I were like, yeah, we're not doing that. So I am on an arm of the investigational drug, which um, originally was called OP because of the pharma- name of the pharmaceutical company, OP1250. They've now given it a name, palazestrant, 
That sounds fun to say. Yeah, which is not the brand. It was you know obviously it's not what if it's approved will eventually be the brand name. But um, so I'm doing that in combination with Ribocyclib. I have completed two cycles, and it's it's interesting because I'm like, yeah, I want to do a trial. I want to like participate. I want access to cool new stuff. I want to help other people that follow me. That's really big for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, the logistics of being in a phase one trial. So when you when you have a new drug, you have to see like how quickly do levels go up? Do they stay up? How, you know, do they drop off at 12 hours? Do we need to give it twice a day? And then when you do this, you add another drug into it, you gotta see if there's any interactions. So it's called um, pharmacokinetics. And so it's a blood test to look at these levels of the drugs, but they're done frequently at a couple points so my um and when you're in a clinical trial there's usually some very young person who's the clinical trial coordinator that's you know working you know with the clinical trial team at your institution um to help you the patient negotiate and navigate all the stuff well when your clinical trial coordinator graduated from college a couple months ago may, you know, and again, this is institution to institution, may um, be very well trained in, oh, this trial, we have to do EKGs. Here's how you do an EKG, and they're trained on that. Here's, here's everything involved in the trial. They're, they're trained on the protocol. They're not often trained on the practicalities. So, for example, the very first day I was going to take the drugs, you know, I had to go for a visit. I had to have fasting labs done, check cholesterol, check fasting blood sugar, check a whole like seven tubes worth of stuff. And this is a 12-hour fast when you say fasting? Yes, 12-hour fast. Okay, so fine. I'm, you know, I'll go in at 7.30 in the morning. No biggie. Um, But they can't dispense the medication until I see the doctor. So she's like, oh, I got you your first, you know, first, you know, day one. And you're going to see your brilliant... NBC expert oncologist at one o'clock in the afternoon. And I went, um, so you, I'm gonna have to be fasting, get fasting labs done before, right before I see her. You do the first, you know, the EKG before I've taken anything. I then have to wait to see her before pharmacy will release the drug to me. And she's never on time. So and, let's say, and wait, this whole time you can't eat either, right? I still can't, still can't eat. I'm like, um, do you want to be fasting from midnight until two o'clock in the afternoon? And then with this particular drug, it has to be taken on an empty stomach. So I can't eat for an hour after I take it. And then I said, Anne, do you really expect anybody from the lab to be there at, oh, I don't know, eight o'clock at night? Right. To draw, because I had to have this pharmaco, the drug level pharmacokinetic test done before I took the drug, 30 minutes after, 60 minutes after, two hours after, four hours after, and six hours after. And she, poor girl, nothing like having a doctor as probably the first person you've ever put on a clinical trial. Um, she, and I'm like, yeah, I didn't think so. So, you know. Next thing I know, I'm like first appointment of the morning, and uh, we do this. I'm getting on my blood drawn, and at the four hour, right after they drew the four hour mark, she comes in. She goes, um, "The biobank where we have to take these research specimens, they close at three thirty. Oh no! 
And I'm like, so... She goes, well, you can leave now. And I'm like, yeah, I just got stuck again for nothing. Um, And, you know, we found out that Biobank will stay late if you give them notice. So, you know, things that are learning, like a learning process, but I do think that can make it, you know, why people may not want to do a trial. Um, I also, I don't live in San Francisco. Right. I live... Lake Tahoe, 200 miles away. So how does that work? Do you go in for like a few days? or? So I'm very lucky. I have uh, family members and friends that live in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I can stay. I stay with one of my friends. And I'll go down the night before my visit. And then I'll do the visit. And, you know, sometimes I'll stay two days if it's like we have to do another blood test the next day. But I have to go, I have to go down once a week. Now, the other thing, here's another thing about clinical trials. Most sponsors, i.e. pharmaceutical companies, will pay expenses like gas, like if you're flying in your plane ticket, they'll put you up. But they put that in really teeny tiny print buried in the 40-page, you know, documents you get. I knew this, but it was like, so how do we do this? Like, how do we do this? And so, you know, I'm fortunate, I'm privileged enough that I can pay for all this stuff up front. You know, 400-mile um, round trip, I live in the mountains, I have an SUV, 20 miles to the gallon, $5 a gallon. Yeah, it's 100 bucks every time I go down there. And, and I want to back up just one second. Is that the way it works where you have to pay up front and then get reimbursed? The, the sponsor does not provide you that cash up front. Most sponsors don't, but I, I listened to a webinar uh, several weeks ago, a couple months ago, a researcher, I think at University of Alabama, Alabama Birmingham, who is going to, is got funding to do a study of people in clinical trials, <coughs> excuse me, and um, giving them a stipend up front. And it's a really interesting design because what she's doing is like, we're going to start off giving people $1,000 a month. And we're going to query them on, was this enough? Was it not enough? And then after, I don't know, a month or I can't remember the time frame, we're going to lower it a little bit from 1000 to maybe 800 Until we find the point where the majority of people say, this is enough for me to participate in a trial without causing an economic burden. Um, and I'm like, that is brilliant. Um, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, so I have to ask, phase one trial, sounds like the logistics are a little bit tricky. Are you still happy you're on a trial? Are you still as enthusiastic about trials as you were? I think I'm even more enthusiastic about trials. I'm also really enthusiastic about setting up a meeting with um, the clinical trial training people <laughs> at my institution. I bet. And, you know, helping them work through how to make it as patient-friendly as possible. Um, how to make it easy, you know, to think about these logistical things, which, you know, it's true. I mean, you know, until you do something, you don't understand how the process works. And I don't care whether it's, I don't know, sewing a dress for the first time or making, you know, veal cordon blue or whatever. Until you do it and you walk through the process, um, you may not have an understanding. And that's true of whether it's a researcher, or a clinical trial coordinator, or actually the patient. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I have one last question then, too. Um, 
to you, clinical trials are important. Tell me why everyone should think clinical trials are important. So none of the drugs that we currently take, you know, including over-the-counter stuff like aspirin, would be here if people hadn't agreed to try this out in the first place. Also, if we don't get enough people to enroll in trials quickly, it could be the most promising thing on the planet Earth, but they don't get enough people enrolled and they have to stop that trial, that drug's never going to make it to to market. None of us are ever going to benefit from it. And if only middle-aged white people participate in trials, we don't know how the drug works or what side effect profile it has in black people or, you know, Asian people or, you know, people of the diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds. We don't know how it works in old people. Right. And man, these clinicals need to stop defining old as 65 and older. Closer I get to that number, I'm like, that's not old. Um, Exactly. Yeah, no, that I... Everything you've just said is so true, and especially about the age, because I know people think about ethnic racial diversity in trials, but nobody really thinks about age. But yet, especially with breast cancer, you know, we're talking 65 to 80-year-old, mostly women, and if those drugs aren't tested them, how do we know that the side effects are the same? And how do we know that they work? And conversely, the younger populations, you know, if if you're in in a trial like the one I'm in, and you, you know, you have metastatic disease, you have metastatic breast cancer, and you have a young family, and maybe you're still working, because you're, you know, you're doing okay. Maybe you're having some progression. You, it's time to think about. It's always time to think about a trial. First line of therapy is time to think about a trial. Fifteenth line of therapy is time to think about a trial. Um, you know, we have to make trials more accessible to people. Um, you know, I understand that with what I'm doing, that they have to do these very, very specialized, you know, pharmacokinetic tests that can't be done at your local, you know, LabCorp or Quest. Um, but I have talked to people enrolled in trials where they have to have a CBC. I mean, a complete blood count. Anybody can do that. But the, inst- the, the institution or the sponsor will not let them get it done locally. They make them have to go. Or, you know, you have to have imaging. And, okay, you know, maybe your radiologists are better, but can't we electronically send the images done locally and have it reviewed by a radiologist at the Mecca? You know? Yeah. Yeah. All very important points. Dr. Kelly Shanahan, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I wish you much success on your trial. Thank you, Jamie. Always love seeing you and talking to you at the best breast cancer conference in the world. (laughs) 